Okay, it says it's live. It is. Okay. And that's that's what it says. Okay. Sergio well, checking saying. it out. Uh, yes. Select. Select. Door. Yeah. Move. Hang. Entrance. I am laid low in the dust. Serve my life according to your word. I recounted my word. You answered me. Teach me your decree. Let me understand and teach the teaching of your precepts. Then I will meditate on your wonders. My soul is weary with sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Keep me from deceitful ways. Be gracious to me through your law. I have chosen the way of truth. I have set my heart on your law. Hold fast to your statutes, O Lord. Do not let me be put to shame. Run in the path of your command that you have set my heart. Hey, praise the Lord. Okay, uh, let's see here. Do we have any? Get a couple. Kathleen is in Ohio. She's looking for a room, roommate, something to rent. Uh, she can go up to $750 a month, and she says she will take anywhere from Ohio to Florida. She's just <laughs> looking for a place to live, and uh, she, yeah, she just, she just needs a place. And so uh, if anybody knows of a place for a lady, uh, you know, a room or a roommate or whatever, $750 a month from Ohio to Florida, anywhere from there to there, she's not... Not uh, going to complain about the uh, so location. She's looking on the I-75 corridor. I-75 corridor sounds about right. That's right. Okay, let's see here. Uh, Pastor Cliff needs prayer. He, it's likely he has cancer, and uh, he is the, he's in charge of uh, taking care of his son, uh, his fourth son, who has Down syndrome. And so that's going to complicate life for him and his wife, who is not well as well. So we want to keep them in prayer. And then Becky, Mark and Becky in... Um, Colorado, they've got some health issues and they've got some family issues, and so she's asking for prayer for them. And so we'll have them in prayer. And oh, before we get started, does anybody here need a Bible? This is my Bible. I read it twice, and uh, now I'm ready to change to another. Uh, change. Well, if anybody needs a grade, if not, I'll hand it out on Sunday. But uh, that was my Bible for the past two readings, and uh, so I just I've just changed to another version. Version what? what? What is the? It's an ESV. Okay. Yeah, it's great Bible. I mean, just I just wanted to see what the ESV had to say, and then I'll go on to another one from there. All right. Um, let's read this day in Christian history, and then we'll get started. Let's see here. Eleven July. No, it's um nine eight eight eight, eight July eight July five six seven eight. Okay, here we go. Eight July. It was the most famous sermon ever preached in America. Anybody know what it is? Sinners. Oh, Jonathan Edwards. Edwards. That's right. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Yep. Okay. The preacher was Jonathan Edwards, pastor of the Congregational Church in Northampton, Massachusetts, and a future president of Princeton College. The date was Saturday, July 8, 1741, and the place was Enfield, Connecticut, where Edwards had been invited to speak. Enfield was not a religious place. The Great Awakening had touched surrounding towns, but not Enfield. In fact, Christians nearby feared that God would pass them by because of the lethargy of the folk of Enfield. As the crowd entered the meeting house to hear Edwards speak, it was with curiosity and nonchalance. Then Edwards began to speak. He did not sound like the evangelists of today. He wrote out his sermons word for word and then usually read them. Listening to Edwards was like listening to a lecturer who made his case in an even-tempered, 
intellectually demanding style in which he tried to develop each step of his argument logically. The title of Edwards' sermon was, Yes, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and his text was Deuteronomy 32:35. Their foot shall slide in due time. Edwards explained his text. As he that walks in slippery places is every moment liable to fall, he cannot foresee one moment whether he shall stand or fall the next. And when he does fall, he falls at once without warning, which is also expressed in Psalm 73, 18 and 19. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou casted them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation as in a moment? The bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow made ready on the string, and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God, without any promise or obligation at all, that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Thus all you that have never passed under a great change of heart by the mighty power of the Spirit of God upon your souls, all you that were never born again and made new creatures and raised from being dead in sin to a state of new and before altogether unexperienced light and life are in the hands of an angry God. And now you have an extraordinary opportunity, a day wherein Christ has thrown the door of mercy wide open and stands calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners, a day wherein many are flocking to him and pressing into the kingdom of God. Many are daily coming from the east, west, north, and south. Many that were very lately in the same miserable condition that you are in are now in a happy state with their hearts filled with love to him who has loved them and washed them from their sins in his own blood and rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. As, Edward, as Edwards preached, members of the audience cried out, What shall I do to be saved? Or am I going to hell? Some crowded toward the pulpit, begging him to stop. At one point during the sermon, there was so much noise that Edwards asked everyone to be quiet so that he could be heard. He ended the sermon by saying, Let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. The wrath of Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of this congregation. Let everyone fly out of Sodom. Haste and escape for your lives. Look not behind you. Escape to the mountain, lest you be consumed. The little town of Enfield was never the same. Why do you think this sermon is so well known? Do you believe that God is angry with you? Or are you among those whose sins have been washed away in his blood? We all need to flee to Jesus from the coming wrath. Revelation 6.16, they cried to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who will be able to survive? So if you want to listen to the entire sermon, just go to YouTube, type it in, Edward, Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and it's right there in 10,000 versions. Very well done by many of the uh, readers, and some are famous. You'll know their voices right away. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come into your presence, and we certainly uh, pray for the people that were just mentioned and the needs that were mentioned. We thank you for the chance to uh, just be in your presence and to revel in who you are, and we know that you are an angry God because of the sin of man, and we know that there is nothing that we can do to change that. No matter how good we are, no matter how much we try, no matter how many 
people we help, no matter what we do, we are still at enmity with you because of the sin that is in us. But you sent Jesus to change that. And there is something that he did that can change us. So give us wisdom to call on the name of the Lord, to be cleansed by his precious blood, and to be reconciled to you through that. Lord, we pray this, and we certainly pray also that this class will be conducted properly and that whatever is said here will be proper. And if it's not, I would ask that you would alert us to what is wrong and uh, that it could be corrected so that your word would not be mishandled and the pure doctrine would be uh, put forth to glorify you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The one thing that impressed me about that was that he had to explain his text. Who would have guessed? Oh, yeah. Who would have guessed? That they texted that. <laughs> Jim said that. They heard. It's okay. Oh, okay. They can hear. Yeah. He, he, They're uh, going, gosh, what a dumb joke that was. Text. Text. Okay, let's see. We've got this done. We've got that done. Okay. Um, we are in Ephesians chapter 3. I thought we were in Philippians, but Burke said we're not. We're still back in Ephesians 3. So we're in Ephesians 3, verse 19, and you probably need to go back to 14 or something, somewhere around there. 14, prayer for the Ephesians. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, for whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long high and deep is the love of Christ. 19. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Isn't that a wonderful passage? It is. I mean, just, just hearing it read it's without great. any analysis is, what a way to start off a day. Oh my goodness. Um, start off the day. I woke up and I went down to make my coffee and I went to put it on the stove and there's a note there Fatso died last night our yeah our little fatty boy so uh yeah that was the first thing I saw this morning and then uh I had to wait for Hidako to wake up to say goodbye before I went out and dug a hole so he's out there as they say oh, pushing up daisies well Hidako he died last night while she was still awake she was with him and she said he just just went away she knew he was going to die at dinner time. Well, Fatso. The, yeah, little fatty boy. So, and he's a good dog. I got him on video with Zacchaeus saying hallelujah. Remember that video? So I sent that to a couple people today. But, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, there you go. That's starting off the day with something not so happy. But that's okay. It was a good time with him. And, and uh, Sergio asked me this morning, are you sad? And I said, I can't be. You know, he was our dog, and I loved him. And when they get old and they start falling apart, you actually want them to die so they're not suffering, you know? And if he died without suffering, I mean, he was yeah. getting old, and I, I mean, I feel bad, and I miss him, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> Mom says, that's me. Uh, it's all of us. I'm telling you, every day that goes by, we're suffering a little bit more. Oh, boy. Okay, 319. Here we go. I'll read it again just so we have the context of the verse. To know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Okay, the verse here forms a play on words, know and knowledge, which form a paradox, and yet, which reveal certain truths. Paul, filled with the desire to express the infinite nature of what God has done for us, 
had just given one paradox. It is that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height. It is impossible to comprehend that which is infinite. You can't do it. And so he stopped as if gasping and then moved on to this verse. He desires that we are to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. Well, how can you do that? If it passes knowledge, how can you do it? In other words, he's giving you a paradox, but it's something that we can eternally strive for. It's something that we will forever and forever. And um, I may have said this in a class, and I may have just said it to somebody. Somebody uh, was emailing, and I get this question from time to time, or I get somebody who says, uh, are we going to have memory when, uh, when we die and are glorified? And I've heard preachers say, you'll have no memory of this life. That'll all be behind you. What is the point of Jesus if we don't have a memory of what we were saved from? I mean, why don't you just glorify everybody and be done with it? It's Of course we will, and I don't want to forget what I've done. I want forever to remember it so that I can see in relation to what he is still offering a billion and two billion and three billion years from now. I will still appreciate what he has done. But Adam and Eve were in a perfect situation, and they hadn't done anything wrong, and then they did something wrong because they had no reference as to the position they were in. I want to remember what I was brought out of. Their, their dilemma was the reverse. Yeah, that's right. Because they had to think back to how good it was, and now we got to live with this. And yeah, and we'll see just the opposite. Change, right? That's right, just the opposite. So what uh, the to know indicates learning through experience. This is in the aorist tense. Aorist means that it happened at a set moment. It would, you know, if it happened in the past, we would say it in the past tense. If it happened right now, from there, it's done. Aorist is just a, from a set moment. Okay, so it's in the aorist tense. The knowledge indicates having grasped what should be known. However, if what should be known is infinite, then we can never, ever, ever fully learn through experience what we are being asked to know. And that's great. I, that's, I want that. Because what good is it to live forever if you don't have something to anticipate and to appreciate? We can always experience the love of God in a new way, forever and forever. What he is saying then is that we are to learn through continued experience at any given time. What God is revealing of himself is the love of Christ. As Charles Ellicott states it, so that they may always go on from faith to faith, from knowledge to knowledge, and yet find new depths still to be fathomed. Like the air that fills the bellows, so the love of Christ should fill the mind and soul, and yet there is an inexpressible amount of air on the outside still untapped. And so we should again fill our mind and our soul in order to obtain more knowledge. And then we should repeat this process again and again for all eternity, ever striving to grasp what can never be truly understood. Now, if you think about it right there, we learn something in the Bible and we say, oh, that's just unbelievable. I never knew that. And then we keep going and we learn something new next Sunday, hopefully, or we learn something new on Thursday or in our morning studies. And we say, I never knew that. And you're learning something. But while you're learning something, because you have a finite mind, you're doing something else. Well, you're expanding, but your mind is finite. So you're forgetting stuff in the process because you can't hold everything in there. And so to me, when I go back and I read some of my old sermons, I will actually say, and I say it a lot when I read them, I didn't know that. And here I type the thing. I mean, it's just, I, and I love that. So if you think about it, because we're finite, there will always be something that we cannot hold in our brain. And so we'll have to, I, I don't know how the Lord is going to work it out, but 
it will be great when we are glorified. That's all I know is it will be great. And right now, I'm always amazed when I go back and I read some of these old sermons, and I say, isn't that fascinating? And then I think, why didn't I remember that? I mean, I, I just don't know. Anyway, no matter how long we live, in the ages of ages to come, we will still be finite. We will never entirely attain to the full, full knowledge of the love of God in Christ. However, we should forever continue to pursue it so that we, as Paul says, may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, how that can be in a finite being, I don't know, but that's what he asks that's us to do. He gave four dimensions. Four dimensions, absolutely. And a couple people emailed me with some interesting thoughts on that, and then Jim and I talked about it a little bit at the projects. But uh, the four dimensions is kind of a, it's kind of a difficult thing to even consider. But um, uh, Paul put it in there for us to, same thing as these paradoxes, to try to contemplate what he is saying. Anyway, um, though it is impossible, it is what we are being asked to do. Oh, wait a minute. Um, yes, that's correct. Again, an aorist verb is used for filled, happened at a certain time. We should be like the open vessel into which is poured the stream of flowing water. Though the water spills out at the top, new water comes in to replace it. Filling and filling until the eternal ages have come and gone, and yet the flow keeps coming. This is the splendor of what God offers to reveal to us as we contemplate his infinite goodness towards us in Christ Jesus. And this is what Paul asks us to know and to be filled with. Life application. The goodness of God in all its fullness I'm sorry, let the goodness of God in all its fullness come and fill you, even to overflowing, and then let him continue to fill you some more. Never cease being filled with the glorious love of God in Christ Jesus. And when we do, that's when our church attendance starts ending. That's when we stop reading the Bible. That's when we do the things that we shouldn't. And then five years later, we think, boy, if I wasted the last five years. But if you just keep being filled constantly and thinking about the goodness of the Lord and and, uh, you know, it's so easy. I was, um, uh, I always just leave the Bible running while I'm driving. And then my son gets in and he knows that I want to listen to the Bible where it's at. And so when he borrows my car, which is about every eight minutes to move something or to do this or that, he uh, uh, will turn it off so that I have it right where it was when I was on it. And then he'll listen to, you know, the Joy FM or something. And I'll be listening, I'll turn on the radio, or I'll turn on the car, and the radio comes on, and I'll be listening to the Joy FM. And there's this Christian song, and I think that's pretty nice. But then I realize I'm not listening to the Bible. I'm wasting your time. I'm wasting my time. Not that I don't like Christian music, but I want to hear the Word of God when I'm driving. Uh, especially because I don't want to do something to the guy that cuts me off that I shouldn't be doing. I want to make sure that I try to... You know, whatever. But uh, uh, yeah, I just, it's so easy to get away from your habits and the things that are important. Not that listening to Christian or anything else. I mean, I'm not opposed to listening to any music. I, when I'm typing during the day, if I'm not doing something important where I have to think, I let music run. And I, I just let YouTube play whatever comes up. And it's very rare that I'll turn off a song because it's that bad. It, I just let them play whatever, and that's fine. It's background, and I it, it keeps me from being distracted while I'm reading stuff for the report and all that. But uh, So I'm not opposed to that. But if you are listening to the Bible while you're working, even if it's just reading news articles, you can't do it. There's no way, because your brain is being 
pulled away from it's one finite. thing to the other. Yeah. <laughs> so finite. I just let the music play, and that just gives me something that is rather than quiet or dogs breathing or whatever. So anyway, um, we're in 320. Oh, Bert's got something. <laughs> the fullness, he said here, that we might uh, be filled up to the fullness. Yep. Colossians 1. Yes, 19. 19. You got that coming? No, go ahead. Okay. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to, to dwell in, in him. him. That's yeah. right, in Christ Jesus. Oh, he is he, He's got all that fullness. We don't have it yet. That's right. We will be in Christ, and we will be united to Christ. So somehow we will have access to the fullness, even though we don't have the fullness. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm not sure how it's going to work. Like I say, the whatever is coming, it is going to be glorious. A quick, you know? quick related story. Our, our housekeeper, really nice. We seem they've become family friends. And... Um, I'm not sure that they're Christians or not, right? Like, you know, I remember one time just saying, like, gosh, it's like, made some mention about heaven. And she said, you know, heaven sounds like it's going to be very boring, just like floating around in the clouds, just playing harps. I'm uh, like, going, who told you that? It's yeah. like, you know, it's like, come on. If you, if you could have an understanding of everything you think you know, that would probably take forever, forever. And then if you had, a, uh, had the full knowledge or to learn everything that you don't know, yeah. Forever plus forever plus forever. It's like you know, you would be endlessly just like falling over yourself with just like this new stuff. Always, right. always. So it's kind of sad, and like I, I talked with her, but I know it was just you know going in one. Well, it's together. because we just can't comprehend those things, especially when we're not understanding the nature of God. And most people just don't even contemplate that, and they don't have the Bible to direct them in any normal sense. And so they, it's just like, you know, and like I say, if. This life was indicative of what the future life would be. I wouldn't want to live it. I wouldn't have anything to do with it. So whatever he has planned, it's going to be a lot better than this. I know that because I just know that. He wouldn't just stick us back into another thing like this and say, okay, here you go. There's going to be something that we can really, and like I said, you know, I've mentioned it in probably 50 different sermons over the years, whether it's Christmas or uh, the Resurrection Day sermons. I try to always bring in the point about, Adam and Eve in the garden, and then the naming of her first son, Abel, and then the naming of her second son, first son, uh, Cain, and then her second son, Abel. And just the naming of Abel, the second son, and you understand what's going on there when she says, or when they call this name Abel, you can understand how desperately she wanted to go back to Eden. If you know what Abel means, it means uh, Hevel in Hebrew. It means breath. It's the breath that you see on a cold day, and then it disappears. And she called her son breath, basically, because she understood that everything. It's the same word in Ecclesiastes, which is translated as vanity. Vanity of vanities. Or in the NIV, it says meaningless. Everything is meaningless. That's what she, when she realized she was not going back to Eden with her first son, Cain, because she said, I, she called him Cain, acquired. I have acquired a man with the Lord thinking he is the Messiah that is going to send me back to the place that she was told, your seed, you know, Genesis 3.15, the first gospel, and she thought, this is it. He's going to get us back to this place, and it didn't happen. And the naming of the second son shows you how desperate she was to go back to what she had lost. And if it was that good, I'm ready for it. That's all I can say. Okay, 3.20, what? 
20. Oh. Now for him, who is able to immeasurably more than we ask for or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. Within us. Okay, a little different here. Now to him, who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. So they had a little superlative in there. Paul bursts into a doxology of praise, as he is so often to do. As he writes his epistles, it is apparent that the process of writing or dictating his thoughts helps him to unpackage the wonder of what God has done in Christ. His emotions rise to such a crescendo that he literally bursts out with words of praise, such is the case right here in this verse as he ponders the enormity of what God has done and probably what God is going to do as well. The words now to him are speaking of God the Father as is seen in verse 14. It is he, as Paul says, who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly. This is a compound adverb which is only found here and twice in 1 Thessalonians. It shows the incomprehensible nature of what God can do. What is done by him is beyond anything which could have been expected or anticipated. Vincent's word studies argues that these words are an independent clause. He says, read the whole, unto him who is able to do beyond all, exceedingly above that which, and so on. In other words, they are a contemplative thought of Paul, which stopped short because of an inability to continue for a moment. He did that a couple verses ago. It seems he's doing it again. It would be as if someone were thinking on the marvel of what God is. In doing so, he stops and says, God is so great, amazingly, marvelously great, greater than I can describe. And then he just kind of stops because he just can't go on. Um, I was watching Is Genesis History uh, last night, I think it was, might have been two days ago. And uh, they were talking about um, how everything, everything is connected. Everything. Okay, in our guts, we have billions and billions of life organisms that live off of us, and yet we couldn't live without them. And there's, there, there's this harmonious working together, and everything is interconnected. It's not like that's the only thing going on. Every single thing is interconnected, and everything relies on something else, or at the same time is also providing something for something else. The wisdom of God is seen in every single thing around us. And, you know, as the guy was talking, I was just, it, it was almost going beyond me to sit there and listen to that because I started thinking of all the other things that are in the same relation. And it just goes on and it goes on and it goes on. And all we have is this teeny little world in the middle of a giant universe. And yet we can't even comprehend what's going on in, you know, a, a, a pond that's three feet deep and five feet wide. And yet we have a whole universe full of that type of stuff that's going on. It's, it's just unbelievable. So this is when you start thinking about the amazing nature of God, the incredible, wonderful workings of God and how he has fashioned every single thing. Uh, you know, one of the Is Genesis Histories I was watching a couple days ago was talking about the strong nuclear force and this force and all these things. And he was describing how if, you know, there's like this number that is a part of one thing. Um, we'll say the distance of the earth from the sun. And if it was off by 0.100000%, things wouldn't work. Yeah. And he was going through one thing after another. It, it was the one on the uh, anthro, 
anthropomorphic principles, I think that, or anthropomorphic principles. In other words, was the universe designed for man? And this, they have a, a, a entire philosophy or study out there. Is the universe designed for man? And he was going through the moon. This is the only moon in the solar system that is this size in comparison to the earth. Nowhere else is this the case. And if it was any different size, then it wouldn't have worked. And he went through thing after thing after thing after thing. That if it's off by one iota, iota then this won't work. And if this is off by one iota, then this won't work. Everything was fashioned. Everything was fashioned to sustain life on this planet. And that life was fashioned to sustain man on this planet. And if any of those things don't work, the whole thing doesn't work. It shows you the wisdom of God. And it wouldn't be possible for these things to form independently as evolution shows. It would be impossible because if this isn't here, then this can't work and then this can't work. Nothing will work unless it's all put together with one wise creation. And so it, it just, you know, but we, we deny these things. You know, we, we do it through evolution. We do it through uh, all the other nonsense that's taught in schools today. We deny these things because we don't want to acknowledge the fact that there is a God. Because if there's a God, then we are accountable yeah. to that God. And if we're accountable to that God, then that means we have to change and we have to start at least searching him out because we're there, there there could be a disconnect and people don't want to go that far in their thoughts and so they reject it and that's the sad thing is that we go through these type of things and we reject the simplicity of the gospel which says that i understand there's a problem and christ is taking care of it because we don't want to yield we don't want to seed ourselves and who we are in order to acknowledge that god expect something of us so we'll give up the simplest thing and go through the most complex things in order to get away from that notion and it's it's hard to grasp and i was there for years i'm sure a lot of us in here were that way for years and all of a sudden something happened in life and you said i realize i need the lord and everything changes from there here comes my beautiful wife and look at i think she is what do you got there, mangoes? She brought mangoes, good. We don't have many more, so take what you want today, and then after that, we might have some on Sunday, and that's probably gonna be it. They're, they're, uh, but you know, with this hurricane coming through, I was thinking, man, I'm gonna be out there picking up mangoes in the morning, 50,000 mangoes. Only two fell the whole right. night. I mean, we were so blessed. I'm telling you, I walked outside, and I saw a palm frond laying in the yard, and I said, oh, I've got all that work to do. I mean, it was nothing. I was, thank you, Lord. As a matter of fact, um, Lynn, he was a little, uh, you know, worried the day before. What should we do to prepare? And I said, I don't think it's going to be anything. But here's what I would normally do. And I gave him the things. And then the next morning, he emails back and he says it was a big nothing. So there you go. Yeah, that's it's just, typically. Yeah, very blessed. Don't get but, used to it. Yeah, don't get used to that. Because, you know, just because we didn't get hit this time, you never know. Right. You just never know. But thank you, Lord, for that. Okay, back so... Back, real quick, back to the gut thing and the yeah. other things that are living inside of you. Most people freak out, and I'm just going to make up a number right now, but it's a number around here. 20% of you is not you. That's right. It's, it's a, at else. least 20%. Right. It, it, it might be, like, closer to 40, but, like, let's just, just run with 20%. And that freaks people out, and they go... And, but the thing is, okay, great. Once you get over that, ask yourself, how do you evolve? Yeah. 
how do you evolve into something no. like that? It's because like, hey, uh, we, I need some bacteria that does this. And yeah, that. no, we're working together. I'm telling you what, and you can't have one without the other. So uh, let's see here. Where were we? Uh, God is able to meet. Oh, let me uh, right here. Um, I'll read that again. In other words, they are a, a contemplative thought of Paul, which stops short because of an inability to continue for a moment. It would be as if someone were thinking on the marvel of what God is. In doing so, he stops and says, God is so great, amazingly, marvelously great, greater than I can describe. And from that high note, he recovers himself and then continues on with the superlative nature of what God is capable of doing. He says, above all that we could ask or think, and I've had people say to me, I can imagine a lot. I can ask a lot. I think Bert's done that a couple times. And it's, it's funny to say that, but if you think about it, we can think a lot and we can say, I want a lot. And it is way, whatever God has in store for us, it is way, way, way beyond what we can. If you think of the people that are chasing the world, this world, and you know there, there are people that rob banks and they have money in their hands. Like, like it's an end in and of itself. And it's all going to be squandered in 35 minutes. They're not going to have anything, and they're going to have to go rob another bank, or they're going to be scared, and they're going to be chasing, you know, uh, running away from the police for the rest of their life or whatever. And it's all for transitory nothing. You think about it, the economy could collapse tomorrow, and every single dollar that you have in the bank could be worth nothing. I'm going to bring up the, uh, the um, Venezuela this week, unless it gets preempted. I have it in store for the Prophecy Update. and. They are now going to cut off eight zeros from their their no from their money system just because they've got in other words right now uh, yeah that's right one million boulevards is worth like fifteen cents or something and so it's so high they're going to just cut off eight zeros and start again they're indexing their money in other words and they've already done this quite a few times in the past few years they've had that could happen to us tomorrow. In the United States of America, that could happen to us tomorrow. And all of a sudden, the $100 bill is worth nothing. Yeah, pennies. And, you know, that takes you, and I don't want to get into this, but it takes you back if, you, if you've ever read the, uh, the book Atlas Shrugged, where the guy is walking along and somebody says, hey, buddy, you got some money, and he just hands over $100 and he walks on because it doesn't mean anything. It has no value at all. But that's where we could be. And so we're worried about things in this life that have zero importance in the eternal perspective. And yet we, we treat it like it's the most important thing in the world, where Paul says that um, uh, above all that we could ask or think, when we petition God for the most incredible of things, God is able to meet those prayers and even go beyond what we have asked for. And while praying, our thoughts are on our highest hopes. But God's ability to perform exceeds even those highest of hopes. However, it is important to remember that Paul ties ask and think in with what God is able to do, not what he will actually do. Sometimes our prayers are not in accord with his divine will. If this is the case, then we cannot expect that they will be answered in the way we wish. Rather, what he is able to do is as Paul says, according to the power that works in us. God is working in us according to his will and his predetermined end. There are times when our desires meet that will, and there are times when they will not. 
But through it all, his magnificent will is being worked out, and we will realize the superlative nature of his workings at the end. Okay, and we know that this is true. If we believe that this is the Word of God, if we believe that this is the Bible, uh, the Bible is God's revealed Word to us, we know that that statement is true, that everything will work out, because we have the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation shows that there are wars coming, and it shows that there are going to be people that die, and it shows that there is going to be this and that going on. We've seen that all the way, we're in chapter 19 right now. And it says that these things are going to happen, and those things, up until just you know, a hundred years ago, were completely considered allegory because they didn't make any sense. And now we can read the things about locusts and we can know with all certainty that it's actually referring to jet fighters. So we, we can say, oh, well, God knew that in advance. We know that these lions with the smoke and the sulfur coming out of their mouths are tanks. And he was just describing them the only way that he could. Okay, so God knows these things are going to happen. And then you go a few more chapters and we get to 20 and 21 and he shows us everything is made new and that all of these things are going to be realized. Well, he can tell us what's going on in the world right now with Israel. And he can tell us about things that until just a couple years ago didn't make any sense at all. Then we can be assured that the things that he says after that are also reliable. So we, we don't need to worry, is God going to fulfill what he is saying in Paul's hand right now? We can be absolutely sure that he is going to do it. Things are going to work out. Life application, God is God, we are man. Let us always make our petitions known to God in humility and with high expectation. But let us also acknowledge to him that your will, your will be done, O God. We should never claim anything in his name. I see that, you know, I'll flip through the TV, which I don't watch TV anymore, but I'm talking about in the past. I would flip through the TV and you go to TBN and there's this person, some lady up on a stage and she's saying, I claim this in Jesus' name. And you wait 15 minutes and there's another guy in another show and he's claiming something in Jesus' name. I find that the most offensive thing on this planet when I see people do that, claiming something as if they have a right to it. Okay, you want that Mercedes Benz? Claim it in Jesus' name. It's absolutely insane to hear people do things like that. You know, somebody was emailing me today about what's going on in the world. And um, uh, I said, you know, we've got these people that are in Nigeria that will tell you, you guys are living in a bubble. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're over there being slaughtered by the thousands because of their faith in Christ. And here we think that this is the normal, that we can have prosperity and we can be rich and we can have all the things that we want. This is abnormal in all of human history. This is because we have Christians that established a nation, they've been productive, and they have glorified God, and those things are going away. They're going away from this nation, and when they are gone, this nation will be gone as well. And the same death that's happening in Nigeria and in Vietnam and countries where they just kill Christians wholesale is going to happen here as well. And we're not going to be exempt from those things, and nobody's going to be saying when they're lined up to be shot against a wall. I claim that Mercedes-Benz in Jesus' name. It's not going to happen. We, we've got such a perverse idea about what God is doing in this world and what we should be doing in relation to that. We should never claim anything in his name. It is presumptuous and arrogant to do so. Instead, let us allow him to direct his will without us snapping fingers of pride. So I, I, I 
sure that'll offend somebody that watches this someday and they say, well, I, I'm, I'm entitled to this or I'm in, we're not entitled to anything. The only thing that we are entitled to, the only thing from the moment that we were conceived, the only thing that we are entitled to is hell. That's it. There's nothing else. We deserve, according to Jesus in John 3.18, we deserve hell. He who does not believe is condemned already. That's his words, not mine. Because that's true, that's all we deserve. Anything beyond that is an act of God's grace, and it is an act of his mercy. And that is it. So everything that we have, every dollar that you have in the bank, every meal that you've eaten this week or that you will eat in the week ahead is an act of mercy by God who is giving the world food. And we see right now, I mean, look in the Pacific Northwest. They're still going at 100 degree temperatures out there. The water is diminishing. They're worried about now people pumping out of the ground. They're going to stop the allowances that have been there since the states were made states because they can't afford to do it anymore. And people are going to start fighting over these things. This is the reality of the situation. And if we look at the book of Revelation, and if we say it's coming soon, which most people think that we're pretty close to the end times, it's only going to get worse. It's not going to get better. And so that's why I tell you what, every single time it rains, even if it rained today and then it rains tonight, I always stop and I thank the Lord. Always. I'm so grateful that he has the mercy on us to give us rain. And that's especially true. Was it you I was talking to? Yeah, Burke. He came in here and he said uh, he got at his house during the storm 5.5 inches. Was that it? 5.5 inches of rain. The next day, he said it was dry enough to mow his lawn. And that's because we're in Florida. And guess what Florida is? It's sand. What's that? Yeah, it's, it's sand. And so if people don't know, if it doesn't rain for, say, a month and a half in Florida during the summertime, if you want to put up a fence and you get at your post hole diggers, you better bring a five-gallon bucket of water, too. Because when you go in there, the sand just runs right out of the post hole diggers. There's no digging post holes unless you have water to make it sticky and then pull it out. And you got to have a lot of water to do that. So that's just the way Florida is. So I am always thankful to the Lord every single time that we get rain. Always. Well, you can get a little too much and then you think, oh, thank you, Lord. But I'm very grateful that we don't have the opposite because, man, what is it? Lamentations. It's, uh, it's saying better to die by the sword than to die by famine. Absolutely. I agree with that 100%. Just run me through and get it over with because, oh, okay, 321. To him be glory in the church and in Christ throughout all generations for every, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. And that's almost identical, so I'm not going to reread it. But I can say that this is the last verse of chapter 3. Okay. Wow. The words, to him are speaking, as in the previous verse, about God the Father, who has orchestrated all things according to his wisdom for the redemption of mankind. It is he who has done, as Paul says, exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. That's verse 20. And to whom belongs the glory in the church. All credit is given to God in the church concerning our redemption, and eternal status where we will live in his presence. Excuse me. No credit can be taken for our entry into this exalted and glorious edifice, and no credit can be taken for our position within it. God has appointed all things according to his wisdom, and we are merely the recipients of this marvelous grace which has come by Christ Jesus. Paul's words, by Christ Jesus. The word by is arguably better rendered as in. 
in Christ Jesus. The work has been done by him, and we are in him now as members of the church. Um, I will say something because I get this comment from people once in a while, and I always appreciate it because people are being gracious, but I disagree with it every time I read it. People will say, oh, you know, I really appreciate your sermons and you, you, you know, this and that and your Bible study or what you said in Romans, and then I'll add in a comment like you're going to get great rewards when you go to heaven. And I think they don't know Charlie Garrett when they say that. They, I, I will get through by the skin of my teeth and by, by the blood of Jesus Christ alone. There's, if I don't get one reward for who I am, that will be deserved. I can tell you that right now. I, you know, I struggle with the sermons. I struggle with doing the commentaries every day because I want God to be pleased that his word is going forth. But there, everything that I do during the day, Hedico knows, just ask her. Mom knows. Everything that I do during the day negates everything I've done for the sermons and for the church. I assure you of that, okay? So it is all about Jesus, and every single thing that we have is an act of grace and mercy, everything. So uh, the work has been done by him, and we are now in him as members of the church. Thank God for Jesus. And because we are— There is credit for humility. What's that? There's credit for Oh, credit for humility. Well, then I'm going to finally— And because we are members of this body— who are in him, we shall exalt and give glory to God, as Paul says, for generations, for all generations, forever and ever. Here Paul has invented a phrase which attempts failingly to explain the eternal state that we have been brought into. Albert Barnes says that there is a richness and amplification of language here which shows that his heart was full of the subject and that it was difficult to find words to express his conceptions. It means, in the strongest sense, forever. A literal translation would be, unto all the generations of the ages of the ages. That's Vincent's word studies. God's plan had a beginning in the stream of time, but there shall be no end to it, ever. The redeemed of the Lord shall walk in his presence for time without end, ever ever searching out the manifold wisdom and glory of God. It is the wondrous hope and expectation that we now possess because of the work of God in Christ. Life, well, isn't that wonderful? Oh, just can't wait. Life application. If you are the redeemed of the Lord, then praise him. You will be doing it for all eternity. And, you, and so you might as well just get started with that now. Be pleased to give God all the credit he is due for the marvelous gift of eternal life. Be pleased to hail the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, we're in a new chapter. For one, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Okay, almost the same, except with which you were called. It finishes with which you were called. And that's a big difference, which you have received and with which you have called. Anyway, well, the word calling, but it's... it's yeah. One is receiving and one is, yeah, it's, yeah, anyway, one is kind of more active than the other. The word therefore is given based on all that he has thus far said in the epistle. Therefore, therefore, I'm telling you this, therefore. As a matter of fact, um, my old pastor, uh, Mr., um, uh, what was his name? Uh, Ross, thank you. I don't know why, you know, I remember the day he died and I couldn't remember his name just now. Why is that? 7 November, 2003. Finite brain. Yeah, finite brain. (laughs) Pastor Ross. He always used to say when he was preaching, he'd say, when you get to that therefore, stop and see what it's there for. Well, there you go. 
The word therefore is given based on all that he has thus far said in the epistle. He is asking them to consider all that he has written and to take it into consideration. This is made especially poignant by the words, I, the prisoner of the Lord. The Greek reads, in the Lord. Though he was a prisoner under Nero, it was because of his status in the Lord that he was imprisoned. Once again, so much for saying that you deserve a house or that you deserve tonight's dinner or anything else. Paul is in the Lord and he's a prisoner because he is in the Lord. What we deserve for being Christians is whatever the Lord doles out to us, whatever it is. And so we just have to face that. But, you know, I, I, I don't mean to get too down on people, but it's very poor theology. It's arrogant and it's presumptuous to say that you deserve anything or that you should claim anything. Just about every commercial on TV, cars. You deserve this. You deserve. I deserve. It's like, stop. You deserve a swift kick in the backside. That's yeah. what you deserve, man. I'll tell you another one that really upset me. Thank goodness I don't see this anymore. But for a long time, people had, you know, either an expensive car or an RV or something. And they had the bumper sticker that said, the one who dies with the most things wins. wins. Mm-hmm. Hello? Yeah. You win what? I, I just, I, I never got that one. Okay. Uh, the Greek reads in the Lord, and let's see here. It is what the Lord had willed for his life, being a prisoner at that time, and his service would be best used from prison. This may seem contradictory, but Joseph was once imprisoned, and it was that time of incarceration that eventually led him to becoming the second highest in the land of Egypt. In fact, if he was not incarcerated, that would not have happened. Now, the Lord could have worked it out another way, but he worked it out in that way, specifically to teach us lessons about Christ in the process, because there are great pictures of Christ in those sermons or in those verses. And yet, Joseph in prison was eventually brought right out of prison, and he went from being prisoner to second in Egypt in a single moment. So you think about the wonder working of God, that's rather incredible. God was using his time in prison for a greater purpose, and that, and the same was true with Paul, who was also being used in this manner. Based on that status, meaning a prisoner in the Lord, he desired them to, his words, walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. If Paul's incarceration was a part of God's plan, and we know it was, then they could look at his position, which would otherwise seem ignoble, and they could then consider that whatever position they were in, they too could find it a place of honor because of the Lord's positioning them where they were. And, you know, I have to remind myself of that when I get up every morning and six days a week I go down to the mall. And I go to the mall and sometimes I walk into the bathroom, it's a public bathroom, and I have to think, I've got to... I've got to do this, you know, and I have to think, you know, I'm the Lord's servant and I'm going to do my very best at taking care of this, but it can be brutal sometimes. It can be so bad. I'm telling you, people can do the worst possible things when they are secreted away from everybody else and they do it, it, you know, they do it with contempt and I just have to, you know, breathe in deep and then get to work. And I just, you know, that, you have to remind yourself that whatever your position is, if you're making a lot of money at your job or if you're not making a lot of money at your job, you are the Lord's servant and you should be doing it to the glory of God. Okay, same thing with 7-Eleven. You know, I, I almost lost it this morning. One of the girls came out and 
She's like, look at those cigarette butts everywhere. I said, this is every single day. The night guy goes out there, and he stands out there with somebody else. I don't know who it is, but he smokes uh, the ones with the tan-colored uh, butts, and another person that he talks with smokes the white-colored butts, and they stand there, and I bet they smoke 50 cigarettes each, and they throw them right down in the parking lot. Every single day, five days a week, they work, and I have to pick these all up. And I think, what's the matter with these people? All it would take would me be going in there and saying, would you not do this? But I'm not going to do that. If he doesn't have enough sense in his head to not do that, and the next day they're all gone and he starts doing it again, he'll just do something else stupid. So, you know, but th this is the way it is in the world. This is, you know, and then there's another one, a person, it's a female, this one, and she smokes too, but she goes over and there's, I'm not kidding when I say this, there's a cigarette, it's a five-gallon bucket that I put dirt in, right, and it just sits there, and I drilled holes in the bottom, so that's the cigarette butt by one of the garbage cans on the side of 7-Eleven. She goes out there every day that she works, and she smokes her cigarettes, and she throws them around, not in the cigarette butt thing, every single day, every day. Now, there's something wrong with people like that, but you know what? That's, that is, I have to say, I'm doing this, and I'm the Lord's representative, and I'm going to do my best at it. But today, I said to the girl, I said, I want you to know, this guy really, he really torques me off when he does this. Maybe she'll say something, but maybe not. Whatever. Anyway, there you go. Um, if Paul's incarceration was a part of God's plan, then they could look at his position, which would otherwise seem ignoble, the point I was just making, and they could then consider that whatever position they were in, they too could find it a place of honor because of the Lord's positioning them where they were. Try to remember that when you're picking up these people's garbage. If high, they would conduct themselves with humility. If low, they would conduct themselves with dignity. Paul has shown them that position in this world is irrelevant in regards to position in Christ. This is what he is relaying to them with his therefore. Everything he set up into this point is tied up in therefore, and he's summing it up right there. They should consider themselves as Christians first and foremost and conduct their walk in that regard. It's tough. I'm telling you, it can be so tough, but that is what we are called to do. And then life application. It is a common thing for people to get swept up in an almost idol worship concerning pastors, preachers, and teachers of the Bible. But it should not be this way. Rather, some of the seemingly lowliest of the church may be the ones who are walking in the most worthy manner in regards to their calling. Let us consider all according to how they honor the Lord, regardless of their position or title. Now, I'm not going to embarrass anybody, okay? But I will say that every Thursday, somebody comes in, and he's been doing this for years, and he said, I want to vacuum the carpet. And so I said, okay, I appreciate it. And I feel guilty sitting here because I've got everything done by the time he gets here. I feel guilty sitting here. And he said he wants to do it. And so it's hard for me not to say, let me do it today. He wants to do it. So he does it. And then the same thing happens on Sunday morning. Somebody comes in here on Sunday morning and this individual wants to do all of the stuff in the kitchen, get the communion ready, get all the fruits and vegetables washed, which I never did. I just put them out and you're going to eat them. But she washes them all. She puts them out in a nice... Now we know. Well, I mean, I never would have thought of doing it. I didn't know you have to wash these things, but she puts them all on this plate and everything is out. Everything works together. Everything works together. But you know what? I find that hard to allow people to do those things because not because I don't want them to do it, but because I feel guilty that I'm not doing it and they're working when I'm 
I'm not doing something at the time. I just, it, it just, you know, it, it's like I should be doing this. And so I appreciate people that do these type of things. And both but, of them are very good people. And, and you had a hard time giving up a stamp? A stamp? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, same thing. I mean, I don't want people to, if they volunteer for it, I have to let it go and say, okay, here you go. But at the same time, it, it's against my nature to have somebody do something when, you know, I can do it. Oh. Charlie's farming out all this stuff. I don't feel that way. I feel like, okay, anyway, just so you know that. Um, uh, yeah, did I finish that? Yeah, let us consider all according to how they honor the Lord, regardless of their position or their title. A good lesson is the pastor a couple of years ago, I think he was in California. And, um, you know, I don't know if he's a good pastor. I don't know if he's a good preacher. So don't send me an email and say that guy is blah, blah. I, I don't care. All I know is that one time he went into the church he didn't shave, and he put on some really dirty clothes. He had a beard, and he looked like a hobo. And he wanted to see if anybody would come up to him. And it was completely, completely different than being the pastor. You know, just Mr., well, you sit over here, and you, you know, you're a little stinky. And, and uh, it was a good lesson for the congregation. Once again, I don't know him. I don't know anything about him. I don't care about his doctrine. I'm making a point about what he did. It was a very wise thing to do. Um, you know, that happened to me once. I was at... Um, uh, Temple Baptist Church, and it was Bible study, and I showed up for Bible study, and I shaved that week. That was um, years ago, but I had a beard, and then I shaved, and nobody knew who I was. And finally, the girl said, it's Charlie. They said, how do you know? Because I had shoes on, and I always wear, if I wear shoes, I always have a red sock and a green sock. And that's because, yes, when you are, when you are, say, yeah, when you're at sea, it, you know, Red right return and uh, port port is right and then uh, when you come back it's yeah uh, yeah well that reminds me which foot to put forward next so yes but that's how she knew it was me and then everybody just didn't say anything because they were embarrassed that they didn't recognize me without my beard but yes if you see somebody with a red sock on my um, uh, left foot and a green sock on my right foot then you probably know it's me we know what direction you're going yeah you know which changes. direction i'm going it changes when you come back yeah that's red, exactly right, red right return green, but the way you remember green. if you forget the way you remember is red port wine port has four letters left has four i'm sorry yeah red port wine that's right red port wine and then so green is right and green and right have five letters so that's how you remember green and red okay there yeah. you go okay so four two four two okay uh <laughs> be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Okay, it's very close, but he uses a different, or this uses a different uh, a form of the words. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Okay, what Paul will now state is an explanation of what it means to walk worthy of the calling which, with which you were called. What he will say is very similar to what he also wrote to those in Colossae, where he says in Colossians 3.12, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. His words are also tied in very closely to Jesus' words, which run through the Beatitudes. They are what we are expected to live out in this walk of life in Christ. In this verse, he begins with what might be termed passive graces. In other words, they are things that we less actively do, but rather they reflect a passive attitude. 
They are to be molded on those things which Christ, who went before us, also displayed in their perfect sense. He begins with lowliness. This is an attitude of the mind where we don't put ourselves on a pedestal, but rather we exalt those around us above us, as, or I'm sorry, those around us above ourselves. He writes of this attitude of diminishing one's own importance back in the book of Romans. There he says, in Romans chapter 12, one more page, Romans 12, and I'll start with verse 2, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Verse 3, for I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one as a measure of faith. Now, I can assure you that when you go out to Siesta Key during the tourist season, there are a lot of people that have never learned this lesson. They think way more highly of themselves than they should. They come down here, they've got a lot of money, they're staying in an expensive condominium, they're driving a very expensive rental car, and they think way too highly of themselves. And it's a sad place to be in this world. You want to think, let not think too highly of yourselves and try to exalt those around you instead. It just came to mind, yes, I did wear green and red socks when I married Thor and Faith a couple weeks ago. So I don't know if anybody noticed that because I had long I pants on. I was awe that there were shoes at the end shoes, of the legs. Shoes at the end of the legs, yes. They were issued to me in 1984 in the U.S. Air Force, and they still fit very well. Okay, so um, his next thought is that of gentleness. It is a meekness of the person which is willing to suffer injury without retaliation, and without seeking revenge. Our gentleness should exude out of us when dealing with those around us, just as Christ also did. Now, that one is a very hard one for me. If uh, somebody, yeah, I was driving down the road today, and somebody pulled right in front of me. I mean, right in front of me. And there wasn't another car all the way down the road, a mile behind me, nobody. And I thought, you know, was that entirely necessary? No. And I... You know, I almost did a Charlie Garrett with that one, but I didn't. So I just, it's very hard for me to to uphold this one, I can assure you. He did not retaliate against those who came against him, but he suffered their degradation and punishment. Okay? Long-suffering is the same thought as that which he gave in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. Let me read that right there. 1 Corinthians, oops, 1 Corinthians 13 verse 4, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up. Okay, long suffering. Long suffering is the same thought as that which he gave in 1 Corinthians 13 4. It is a passive action and it is something that requires perseverance. We should be willing to put up with a constant stream of trials and yet be willing to praise God through them. Now, I think I can do that. I can do the second part. I don't put up with the constant stream of trials very well, but I can praise God even when I'm not putting up with the stream. And I'm just trying to give you something so that maybe you can say, yeah, that fits me, or and we can build each other up in this, because I don't handle change well, I don't handle stress well, but I know that even when I'm stressed, I will still praise God through it. So there's, I'm lacking in half of it, but I think I get the second half right. Job suffered as much as almost anyone. And yet he made a resolution, I'm sorry, a resolute proclamation 
in Job chapter 1. It's one of my favorite verses, and I try to cite it to people when they're uh, going through something. Uh, it sometimes People might get offended when you say this to them, but it's still worth send, saying it to them when they're going through a string of troubles. Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and fell to the ground, and he worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. If you can do that in the worst of trials like Job did, then you will be, like I said, I've sent that to people and I've had some people get upset at me. Well, I, you don't understand my predicament. Well, I, read Job. You don't understand okay, his. You know? But sometimes we get so self-consumed with our own trials and our own troubles that it's just one constant pity party. And we can't be that way. We have to say, you know what? The Lord has ordained this for me. I don't understand why he's done it, but he is testing me, he's refining me, he's molding me, whatever he's doing. And we need to say, I'm not going to have a pity party over this. And, you know, I, I mean, if sending you a scripture from Bible, which is in the context of the uh, situation you're in, offends you, then you need to read your Bible more. That's all there is to it. And, you know, it, it, this is the word of God. He wouldn't put these things in here unless it was there to develop us as human beings in his presence. The fact that Job started out with that. Yeah. It ended. It ended very well. That's I mean, right. You know, it's like, you know. He kept, his, he kept his cool through the whole thing, and he was a little off in what he was uh, presenting, and the Lord had to call him out on it about chapter 40, you know. Uh, Job was more, he wasn't wrong in his doctrine about God, but he was wrong in his doctrine about what God is capable of, where his three friends were wrong in their doctrine about God. And so, you know, this is an interesting thing. Somebody emailed me one time and she asked, you know, I always hear preachers quoting the book of Job in the part where the three people are speaking. Okay, not Job, when the three people are speaking. And yet the Lord says that what they said about me is wrong. Is it okay for them, these preachers, to quote that? And I said, yes, it is. Because that isn't the issue that the Lord is finding fault with them. They say things that are true, and truth is true. It doesn't matter who says it. It doesn't matter. True is true. If they say something about the nature of God, which is true, but their conclusions are wrong, you can still say the true part, okay? So it's not wrong to quote that, but what they were doing was they were limiting God, and they were putting him in a box that he did not belong in. And so their, their idea, their concept of who God is was incorrect, and so that came out in what they said, but they do say truths in there which are worth quoting. So you got to be careful with Job and that issue, but it's... But, but they operated without any Bible. No, that's right. They but operated they still, without they, any Bible. If they got that close to that Bible, yeah, get them to start their effort. Start, yeah, that's absolutely right. Yep. Okay, so here we go. Uh, Job 121. Finally, in this verse, which is uh, verse 4-2 right now, he notes that our walk should include the attitude of bearing one another in love. The word indicates a purposeful endeavoring in our attitude. We should have an earnest desire to exert ourselves in love in order to secure a thing not lightly obtained. That's Albert Barnes' words. I'll read it again. We should have an earnest desire to exert ourselves in love in order to secure a thing not lightly obtained. People can wear us out with their own pet peeves, their insecurities, their jealousies, and the like. In our walk, we should be willing to bear such things in love. 
rather than breaking down and shooting forth darts of anger. I know that's hard. We're all human beings. We get different stresses. My daughter calls when she's hungry, she gets angry. She calls it being hangry. I, she inherited that from me, okay? She's adopted, by the way, and she still got it from me. Somehow my genes passed on to her. But uh, we, we both do not handle life well when we're hungry. And that's a, you know, it's not a good thing to do because we all get hungry three times a day. And so if you get me right before dinner time, you might get uh, something that you didn't expect. But yeah, the, uh, the, the hope is that we will, let me read that again. People can wear us out with their own pet peeves, insecurities, jealousies, and the like. In our walk, we should be willing to bear such things in love rather than breaking down and shooting forth darts of anger. Okay, life application. Paul's words are a tough thing to live out. I was thinking of myself while I typed that commentary. So you know that I feel that way, and it's not just something I'm saying to make people feel better. They are, for Charlie Garrett, a tough thing to live out. But they are written under the inspiration of the Spirit and are thus things that we are being asked we're being asked to do because they are what God approves of and therefore expects of us. I know it's hard if you're convicted by any of those things. Just remember, I feel the same way. Let us endeavor to do the utmost to act in accord with these precepts. Okay, hard thing to do. I understand that. I fail as much as any person I know, but it doesn't excuse the fact that I do. It's just, it's true. Okay, 4-3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit throughout the bond, through the bond of peace. Okay, a little different. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. They say through, this one says in. Okay, uh, let's see here, 4-3. These words complete the list of things by which one will be able to walk worthy of the calling with which he was called. Paul's words. In order to do this, he notes that we should be endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. The word endeavoring doesn't really share the sense of the original, which indicates to make speed. Thus, something like haste to keep the unity of the Spirit is more in line with Paul's intent. Which one did yours say? Uh, it says make every effort. Make every effort. Well, it, it indicates speed, haste, or, you know, uh, be quick to, or something like that. We should strive with all willingness and speed to ensure such unity. This unity of the Spirit, Paul's words, is not referring to a possible division of the Holy Spirit, but rather any division of those sealed with the Holy Spirit. Paul has been speaking of the church as one body and that we are all members of one household. Therefore, we should be united in our conduct and our walk because of this. However, this brings in an obvious difficulty. When doctrine is lacking or the Word of God is mishandled, Either unintentionally or intentionally, which is possible, there can be no true unity of the Spirit. I typed a sermon on Monday. I typed it on, let me see if I can find, I think it was uh, Genesis, I'm sorry, uh, Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. I, you know, that rings a bell, and I think that's what it was, and it's a good bit uh, we're reading this right now, because I'll tell you exactly what I did. It won't be out for 10 weeks. Hopefully, we'll be raptured before then, but let's see. I'm going the wrong way. I'm in Deuteronomy 4 now instead of going toward 24 because my brain just is not that big. Okay, hang on a sec. Here, 24. Okay, Deuteronomy 24. Yes. Uh, no. Yes. Okay. When a man takes a wife and marries her, 
And it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies, who took her as wife, then her former husband, who divorced her, must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. So that's the sermon coming out in 10 weeks. I typed that on Monday. And I was asked by somebody in this church February of last year, so it's a little more than a year ago, almost a year and a half, Charlie, he sent me a sermon, and he said, I'd like you to evaluate this. This needs to be addressed. And I typed up an evaluation of it, and then I just let it go because, you know, I thought maybe I'll just do it when, you know, we have a, a, a need in the church or something. And I just kind of forgot about it. And he happened to mention th those verses. And it, what I did was not for a sermon. It was just to be like a Bible study or something. It was just, just notes. And, uh, but... I thought, this is the perfect time to address that. And the doctrine that he put forth was appalling. It was horrific. The, the sermon, I think, is 24 minutes and 11 seconds long, and he probably had 55 errors, either in thinking or in theology or in just quoting the Bible. It, it, it was terrible, okay? And so uh, I'll read again what I just read so you understand why I brought that point up. It says, um, however, this brings in an obvious difficulty. When doctrine is lacking, or the word of God is mishandled, either unintentionally or intentionally, there can be no true unity of the Spirit. And so people may find offense at me typing a sermon and quoting this person and citing where he was wrong and why his theology was terrible. I'm sorry. Paul, in Galatians chapter 2, does what? Burke, I know you remember. What does he do in Galatians chapter 2? Somebody is doing something wrong. Face-to-face oh, face. Face face and publicly, yeah. openly. People always send me these messages and they say, Charlie, you shouldn't say this about Amir whatever, or you shouldn't say this because they like this person. Mm -hmm. They like to watch him, okay? And they say, you should email him privately. I'm sorry, it does not work that way. The Bible never asks you to privately email somebody that has wrong doctrine, ever. You call them out on wrong doctrine. That Wouldn't is that the precedent. What? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, don't. Just eat, don't email. Don't, don't email. Don't do anything. Just let him have his bad doctrine. I'm sorry. If somebody is teaching bad doctrine, they are to be called out on it, and it is to be open. And that's why I say at the beginning of every single Bible study, if I am wrong, I hope I am alerted to this, mm -hmm. because I do not want to teach something wrong. But I need to be told that there is something wrong. That's all there is to it. And if they are wrong, then I'll go back and I'll say, here is why I am right, and you're telling me I'm wrong is wrong. And then we can work on it from there. But when I give that sermon, if somebody finds offense that I'm going to call this guy out on, it's because somebody asked me to evaluate the sermon because he quoted the passage that we're in during uh, that in Deuteronomy, and it's a perfect time to do both. This guy wants an answer, which I never gave him. It's been a year now, and so I will give it to him. But bad doctrine does not mean that we have unity of the Spirit. It means exactly the opposite. We have no unity of the Spirit because, and I'm going to show you why, this is given by the Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, gave us this divine inspiration through men of God. If this is mishandled, 
if this is misquoted, if it is misapplied, whether it's unintentional or intentional, there can be no unity of the spirit with the person until that is corrected. And that's why when you call out a heretic, you do it because they are saying something that is inappropriate. Okay? And hopefully they'll change. Some people will just try to justify why they say things and go on with their bad doctrine because they get more money out of it or whatever. I don't know what the reason people do things is, but there cannot be unity of the spirit when doctrine is not correct because the spirit, perfect example, somebody goes to a charismatic church and you tell them this is ungodly what they are doing. And they said, no, this is the Holy Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit says that no more than three can speak in tongues, and it must be translated. you got 55 people all rolling around on the floor, supposedly speaking in tongues. There is no translator. It cannot, I'm sorry, it cannot be of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit will never contradict himself. God is not self-contradictory in any way, shape, or form. So, if it doesn't match this, then it cannot be of the Spirit of God, and there cannot be unity. Okay, so if people don't like that, I cannot help them. The Bible gives us the precedent of what to do, and that is what we are to do. Okay, yes, this is seen throughout the epistles and even in the seven letters to the seven churches. In Romans 16, 17, Paul says the following. Romans, I don't remember what he said, so I'm going to be interested to say, see what he said. But Romans 16, 13, 14, 15, two parts, probably 16. 17, he said, um, oh yeah, now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses, contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. You're to note them, and you are to avoid them. And then I'll go on. For those who are, who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. Okay? Doctrine matters. Doctrine really matters. And I'm not talking about somebody that gives something that, you know, could be a point of disagreement that, you know, well, it, it could be. I mean, there's a lot of things that we just can't know 100% for sure. I'm talking about things that are just openly wrong. They're doctrinally wrong. And they continue down that. Paul would tell us to avoid those people. Therefore, it is understood that such divisions will exist. A lack of unity is inevitable. Paul doesn't say that this cannot occur. Rather, he instructs that at times it must occur. What he is asking of us in this verse is that we work with all speed to not let this happen. How do you do that? You get up and you say, this is wrong. Peter, what you were saying is wrong. You have been living like the Gentiles, and now you're telling the Gentiles that they have to live like Jews. What are you doing? That is, he did it with all speed. He literally jumped out of his seat. It doesn't say that in the Bible, but you can make your mental picture of it. He was beside himself that... This is happening to a congregation that he had established. These people understood the grace of God. They had received the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden, Peter comes in and starts pulling away from them. And he's caving to the people that had the wrong doctrine. Oh, I better get going. We're almost done here. Um, let's see here. Uh, he's asking us in this verse that we strive with all speed to not let this happen when circumstances so dictate. It is our job to strive for felicity among the brethren and, as Paul says, keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This bond of peace that he speaks of probably refers back to verses 2, 14, and 15. He says, therefore, he himself is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, 
the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Where there was once the great division of Jew and Gentile, Christ has made peace. If such an immense source of enmity could be ended through his work, then all others are possible as well. However, it is in what that was the exact issue that Paul brought up to Peter, that exact issue that I'm talking about right now. However, it is incumbent on the offender as much as the offended to be willing to strive for this peace, something which is less likely to occur. Someone who holds to a particular incorrect doctrine will often double down on their stand rather than seeing reason. Pride steps in and it is unwilling to admit wrong. Thus, the bad doctrine is then passed on to others and it becomes a larger and a larger separation. This is why there are so many denominations with so many unfavorable doctrines to contend with. Some are heretical, some are doctrinally unsound, some are simply nutty pet peeves. It is only through a pure and wholehearted pursuit of Christ that these things will ever be set aside. As God is love, Colossians 3.14 shows us how this will be affected. Colossians 3, verse 14. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Putting on love is what will unite the spirit. It must be the highest love, that of the love for Christ and his word, which brings this about. If we are willing to put him first, then the incorrect doctrines will be set aside for purity of doctrine, which stems from him. Life application and we are done. Hedika wanted, she has something for us to do. and. Well, we'll be we'll be on time. We might we're not going to have as much time as we had, as I was thinking. But we will be at least on time today, and then we can do what Hedico has planned at the house. Paul admonishes us to strive for unity, but he never asks us to do this at the expense of proper doctrine. The world of ecumenicalism errs because it puts unity above purity of doctrine. This is a very very bad place to be. The words of Scripture ask us to have our allegiances aligned properly. Doctrine matters more than false unity. That is what we must remember, is that doctrine must be above false unity, because if it is not, then we will be in the state of all of the churches in the world that are quickly, quickly falling away from the Lord. They say we need to be uni united in the spirit. You hear the Pope say that all the time. And at the same time, they're caving to false doctrines. They're caving to the world. And the end times are right around the, right around the corner. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come into your presence. How wonderful you are. How good you are to give us this word and to give us the chance to read it and to share it and to uh, love it. And help us to do that, Lord. Help us to read it in the morning, read it during the day, think on it contemplate it, read it at night, meditate on it, sleep on it, help us to just let it fill us with our, with our total being so that we are united with you and we become more and more like you. May it be so to your glory, and we pray this in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Amen. Here. Just, oh, wait, um, that's going, okay, what I need to do is push it on break. Okay. Thank you.